Hey there, this is Kent Roundy at uh, USH Med Student, back for another try at having better sound audio quality for another podcast with a group of medical students that is closing in on the end of their second rotation during their third year. We have two students who are uh, have already been the stars of the performance, and we'll have them introduce themselves, starting with Elliot. Hi, I'm Elliot. I'm a third year student uh, from Rocky Vista, and I have been rotating with Dr. Roundy and the team here at Utah State Hospital for four weeks now, I think. And I've enjoyed my time here. As of right now, my top interests are cardiology and pulmonary critical care. Um, but we'll see how that pans out in the long, in the long run. <laughs> Be interesting to see, and of course, Will, I threw a curveball at you just because I couldn't resist looking at you and having Elliot introduce himself first. Will, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name's Will Burnquin. I'm also an OMS3 from Rocky Vista, and my current interests are pediatrics, psych, and internal medicine. Um, I've had an awesome time the last three and a half weeks, and I'll be sad to go, Dr. Roundy. Ah, uh, you are my favorite student ever. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, now we've got uh, two students. You guys have been rotating with Dr. Thomas in the, uh, at the Utah State Hospital also. Uh, you guys have had a different experience than Will and Elliot. And we're interested in putting together a podcast as well as a team. Tell me, uh, first of all, who you are and a little more introduction, right? Uh, a little bit about where you're going, what you're passionate about. And then uh, I think Will, or I'm sorry, I think Max, you're gonna tell us about why you chose this topic. So let's let's go down that pathway. Okay, my name is Michaela Schweitzer-Hennen and I am a third year medical student. I have been here at the Utah State Hospital for three and a half, going on four weeks. I have really enjoyed this rotation. I'm particularly interested in um, oncology and potentially palliative care. So psychiatry plays a big role in that and I've been having just a great time getting to know the staff and getting to know the patients. And I am Max Muir. I am also a third year medical student at Rocky Vista. Um, been working with Michaela under Dr. Thomas and I am also a pre-doctoral fellow at the, at the university. Um, I'm interested in Probably general surgery is where I'm headed this way. Trauma surgery has kind of been my, my dream since I was a kid. That's kind of a weird dream, but, so that's kind of what I'm most interested in, but uh, it's been a great rotation. Psych's definitely one of the options. Um, so I'm actually- Max, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt here. You can put your laptop up on the desk here so that you don't look cramped there. Just trying not to block, block the sound, but. He has a face for radio. He's trying to let us yeah. see it. <laughs> don't want you guys to see. Ouch hiding my face here. So today we're going to be talking about um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, and uh, Michaela and I kind of tossed around a few ideas of a podcast topic. Um, autism spectrum disorder was was uh, mentioned and we kind of, we ended up uh, on ECT mostly because we both felt like we didn't know much about it. Um, we thought it was interesting because, um, you know, not only is it used, but it's actually the most effective treatment for depression. Obviously not first line, but found that interesting. And so we kind of just, we just kind of landed on it. And as we learned more and more about it, I think it was apparent that it was the right choice. It's a really interesting topic. So Michaela's actually gonna talk a little bit about some of the most high yield um, facts for boards and the shelf exam. So we know all of your favorite word is high yield. So we just wanted to go ahead and get to the heart of it and talk about what you're gonna see in terms of test questions if you're studying for USMLE, step one, step two, or your shelf. 
Um, so when it comes to ECT, the questions are probably just going to go ahead and write out and mention severe depression, something refractory to multiple medications, so a sort of treatment resistant. Um, it may also mention something along the lines of extensive weight loss, um, an elderly patient, um, emerging psychotic features, and potentially even pregnancy. So patients who are in a pretty acute state, something emergent, and need a quick result that um, pharmacology isn't going to give you. Um, so that is when ECT would probably be your correct answer. If it goes beyond that and asks you about side effects, the most common side effect is amnesia, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, one other topic that we saw come up quite a bit on step two and shelf questions was that there are no absolute contraindications to ECT, including pregnancy, which tripped me up originally. Um, the only things that you should consider, although they're just relative contraindications, are recent MI, recent stroke, or brain-occupying lesion, and an unstable aneurysm. So um, keep those in your brain when you're thinking about that, but no absolute contraindications, including pregnancy, um, and in severe depression that um, isn't being treated by multiple pharmacology trials, go ahead and pick ECT. So let me ask a very quick question. Are we going to talk a little bit more about ECT and pregnancy later or more about side effects of ECT later? Side effects, definitely. But uh, pregnancy, um, we, we weren't planning on it, but mm -hmm. pregnancy is definitely a major depressive disorder. In pregnancy, ECT is the first line treatment. It is safe for the, the growing fetus, um, unlike a lot of the pharmacologic options. So definitely the, the pick. I did get a, a tricky question about schizophrenia in pregnant uh, patients. Um, ECT was, uh, was an option, but actually uh, antipsychotics are usually the call. They are not teratogenic. They're safe for the fetus generally. So I thought that was kind of confusing. They do seem to be. I think part of that comes back to the idea uh, that we have a device approval for indications. In this case, we've usually talked about uh, package inserts or product information and the labeling that the FDA has given various medications in these podcasts. This is different. You sent me, what was it, 21 CFR section something or another. <laughs> the FDA. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, I loved it. Love the legal stuff, right? Right. It was actually pretty cool yeah. um, because what that told me was that, uh, here it is, 21 CFR Part 882 from, from the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Administration, FD. Oh, I didn't know what they caused. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, that. I, I read that. And they huh. talked about relabeling from class three to class two devices. Yeah. And there are some very specific indications. And they speak very clearly to the test questions. And I never realized this before, right? The, the one is it's for major depressive disorder, mm -hmm. catatonia, greater than age 13. And essentially, anytime you need a rapid response, whether there's a medical illness or something that's, you know, the, the, there's some sort of timeline that becomes critical, mm -hmm. immediately think of ECT. In other countries, there is approval for use of this device for schizophrenia, and there's a lot of data that we read in the articles that, that we went through. Mm -hmm. uh, but it hasn't been approved for schizophrenia in the United States, so perhaps that's the delineation. The other part of this for uh, pregnancy, one of the things I found very interesting in the articles that we read through is it's not as simple as simply hooking up an electrode and buzzing somebody, correct? There's a very long history that we're going to go through and we're going to talk about how those electrodes are placed. And in addition to that, in pregnant women, it's important to, to remember that there is a way to do that, right? You have women lay on their 
left side. Left side yeah, left side. I think is what it said. Um, you need to be uh, and probably not worry too much about the anesthesia, mm -hmm. but there are some uh, issues about uh, oxygen of the fetus that you kind of have to be aware of. So you want the seizure to be the perfect seizure, so to speak, right? And we'll talk about the perfect seizure as we get into this. But just a few caveats with that, uh, with the pregnancy, which I thought was very interesting and things that I was not aware of before this. Mm -hmm. So, so now that I've interrupted about pregnancy, and we are going to talk about some of the other things, I'll add one other quick caveat, and it's something that never dawned on me before, and that is that when we're talking about ECT and the benefits and the risks of ECT, remember that most of the side effects that somebody uh, experiences during electroconvulsive therapy are related to anesthesia, not to ECT itself. And we will talk about some of those distinctions later, but I just wanna set that in people's minds as we get started here. So with that in mind, one of the things I, I have always wondered, <clears throat> I've always kind of asked myself, who in the world was the first person that put electrodes on a human being? <laughs> and why in the world did they think that it would be helpful? What kind of cruel person does this, right? And I was very surprised reading through the literature that this didn't evolve in any cruel way at all, right? And and so Max, I think, uh, let's see, no. Max, yeah. you got the history, right? Yep. Ta talk about. to us about this history that, that is so fascinating. Well, uh, one thing that I was not expecting was uh, at least convulsive therapy to kind of span the entire like history of medicine. So um, pre-ECT history, um, kind of the like the prelude to ECT starts all the way back in like 400 BCE with Hippocrates. He actually noted, he's at least the, the first person to note that we know of, that uh, malaria induced uh, febrile seizures seemed to help the mentally ill. And it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what he was talking about. You know, they didn't have the same, they didn't have DSM-5. I don't think they had DSM-1 there, a DSM at all. I think but, you're uh, right. I think. Kind of going uh, out, out, out on a limb. Going out on a limb there. You know, it, he did, did note that there was a therapeutic benefit to these uh, seizures. And uh, I think that, that kind of, that was probably ignored for maybe a couple thousand years um, until around uh, 1917 in uh, Austria. I can't pronounce his name. I'm gonna have Michaela uh, interject and. Uh, Julius von Jachig. Yes, Julius von. You know yeah, him. Jachig. So he actually he was the first to kind of. I don't know how how I'd put it, but he would he was kind of investigating how these seizures would help uh, somebody with mental illness, and he he experimented with tuberculosis, um, strep pyogenes, erysipela specifically. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, typhoid fever. And he ended up finding that uh, malaria, um, he, he, well, he first noted that these, these fevers tend to help certain patients that after they, if they made it out of this febrile seizure, they were actually were better off, the, these certain um, mentally ill patients, and found that malaria-induced seizures was possibly um, therapeutic for neurosyphilis. And then we, uh, we jumped I'm, I'm going to jump in there just a little yeah. bit. So, so there's a like an overarching theme to this, right? And that is, the, the background is being set not just for maybe a seizure to address something, whether that's a electroconvulsive or a chemical convulsive seizure or an illness convulsive seizure. The idea that initially is promulgated 
is that we can have one illness tackle another illness, right? Fire with fire. Fire with fire. And then there's two other things that start coming out at about the same time, um, and this is slightly before uh, Maduna, mm-hmm. right? Um, there, there is, uh, well, I guess Maduna starting this. He's, he's looking at the brains of people who have epilepsy, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And tell me what he finds in the brains of people with epilepsy. Well, um, if I, I think I know what you're talking about. He, he basically found that, uh, that uh, inducing a seizure, maybe with uh, something like metrazole or cardiazole, um, camphor actually has anti-convulsant effects, um, which is kind of kind of counterintuitive in my at least in my brain. Yeah, I'm going to go back just a little bit first. I think. Okay. Yeah. So there's this story that maybe I got wrong, but the idea that what's happening is Maduna is looking at the brains of people who have seizures, and he finds that there is a proliferation of glial cells in the brain. Oh, yes. At the same time, there's another guy in his lab named Hecht, I believe, and Hecht finds that there is an absence of glial cells in people who suffer with schizophrenia. And so the idea, I think, comes out of the, kind of what we mentioned before, fighting one condition with another to try and minimize the effects of one or the other. And so I think the idea is, how do we then cause seizures for people that have schizophrenia so that they can get these glial cells because maybe that's the problem, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's where the Maduna story that you have picks up again is he's starting to try and figure out how do you do that? How do you cause seizures in somebody so that they can have these glial cells potentially? Yes. So pick the story up from there if you wouldn't mind. So he he experimented uh, like I was saying with camphor um, and uh, metrazole and found that uh, post uh, post seizure that these patients tend to do really well, and uh, the bad thing is not exactly safe to administer those uh, those drugs, and so it wasn't necessarily uh, something they could actually implement um, very effectively. So I think that hard to get the right dose, hard to exactly hard to kind of measure the seizure that was going to happen. No way. A lot of variation in response, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think they experimented with a number of different kinds of things. Uh, insulin was a, something that came out of Canada. Yep. And along comes a guy named Serletti who says, what, what did he call the science of treatment? He, he had some name for it that was brutal I, and, yeah. and funny, right? It was like well, funeral science. It, it was yes. funeral science. Funeral well, science, right? Because he's like, what are you guys doing? Come on. And yet this took over Europe. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of people using convulsive therapy. Yeah, he well, he first uh, got the idea from a slaughterhouse, which uh, you know is kind of kind of morbid. But he he noticed that they were using um, like electro shocks to anesthetize these uh, these pigs before putting them down, and they were very calm. And he was like, well, maybe that could be used on humans, but you know we don't necessarily, we're not going to kill them, obviously. So he and his lab assistant, um, and I think a. Bini? resident. B- B-I-N-I? Bini? Yeah, Bini. Um, in 1937 or 38, they, uh, they devised this, this device, this uh, mechanism to, um, like you said, it was hard to measure a drug, but you can measure volts, right? So they, they made this device that could administer a, a certain amount of shock and started experimenting with it. Um, they were using it mostly for uh, schizoph- or people with schizophrenia. 
And, uh, but it ended up being most useful in depression. And from there, it really just took off. At the time, obviously, you know, they were just, they were just shocking people. And so the side effects were, were pretty, pretty severe compared to what they have today. You know, people had uh, probably a lot more terror and, uh, and headaches and muscle aches, all sorts of things. I also read a few reports from orderlies from hospitals at the time where they were treating these patients that actually said one of the most difficult parts of administering ECT in the 30s and 40s was that the orderlies had to chase down patients to administer it because it was such a terrifying experience for them. So I think it's also just important, although the science was occurring, it was very traumatic for these patients. Yeah. So as, uh, as time went on and uh, you know, more, more and more things became available so the science progressed, um, you know, curare, the, the toxin from Central America, it was experimented with because they knew that it had some muscle relaxant um, properties. And eventually they, they figured that succinylcholine, after um, its discovery, would be probably the best, um, best option for these patients to prevent the actual like, tonic, clonic portion of the seizure. So you still get the generalized seizure, which is actually the therapeutic part of the ECT, but you don't have the muscle contraction. Um, and around that same time, unfortunately, when they introduced uh, succinylcholine to these treatments, um, uh, antidepressants came on the market. They, you know, we had the, the introduction of stimulants and tricyclic antidepressants around the f 50s. And that, uh, in combination with people kind of hearing that, you know, there was this sensationalism of like people, these rumors came out where they hear that people are being electrocuted. And, uh, you know, that's obviously not the case, but um, that those rumors, that misinformation spread, antidepressants came out and the, between the 50s, 60s, and 70s, uh, ECT was on the decline in use. And it wasn't until um, the mid-70s, I can't pronounce the name either, but I think it's Dr. Blake Blatchley. 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 So he introduced, I think it's a, a brief pulse. Um, brief pulse stimulus? Brief pulse stimulus. So and was this the same guy who reduced the... So, so I think there were a couple of things that changed over the ensuing 30, 40 years, right? There yeah, was skipped over a few. Kind of the idea that there's a critical threshold to induce the seizure, and then dosing is about how much over that seizure threshold you go with the electricity, and the duration of the seizure is very important, right? So yes. those are the things that started to work out. So they changed the dosing, so to speak, of the electricity, and almost immediately had fewer side effects. They explored. Uh, bitemporal versus unilateral and ECT. Yes. I think the jury is still somewhat mixed on that depending on how you read the data. And then there were a few other things that were introduced including succinylcholine, right? Mm -hmm. So so instead of having to see people break teeth and you know other kinds of things, we have mouth guards, we have uh, succinylcholine and then we tie off one part of the leg or you know, in theory to watch that foot tap, right? Exactly. During, a, during the seizure. And so I think there, there are a number of things that are happening over the ensuing 30 years that improve ECT, but the media depiction remains very difficult. Yep, yeah, it does. And so in that time, things have certainly changed. And as we've talked a bit about ECT already, we wanted to give you just a quick framework of what it looks like today, um, just before we go into sort of the more modern pop culture history of ECT. So today, most states do require two physicians to verify the need for ECT, and there is a full workup prior. So this is not, as much as it is a ideally rapid response, it's not a rapid process to get set up because you do need a full workup prior. Um, you need labs and imaging, you need to check for risks of potential side effects, so neuro exam, cardiovascular exam, um, and then 
their decisions have to be made about whether or not it will be a unilateral or bilateral procedure. Um, and then in terms of the actual procedure, there's administration of anesthesia and then a muscle relaxant. Um, so in the procedure room, Max actually found out that the ECT terms will let you choose the music in your procedure room, which is Probably not all of them, but yeah, I thought that was cool <laughs> that you, know, you get to pick the soundtrack to your... Treatment. And during the process, you are heavily monitored. So there's, um, you're getting an EEG, an ECG, you do have a mouth guard in, to, again, to protect teeth. Um, blood pressure is monitored, oxygen is monitored, and the whole process has you know, pretty much a, a pretty hefty setup, but it takes less than a minute once everything is going. So we thought that was really interesting and just might give you um, some frame of reference as we continue to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, one of the more opinion pieces I read said that the most common response of healthcare workers, particularly medical students, when they observe ECT for the first time is, quote, that's it, question mark. So we thought that was interesting because it does seem a little bit anticlimactic, I guess, to have this big <laughs> setup, but in your head it's really building up to this big thing and turns out it's less than a minute and then it's done. Yeah, just a few seconds. So, and after that they'll of course monitor your lab. So that's what it looks like today and for the last couple decades, but the depiction in pop culture has been pretty abysmal. Hollywood definitely loves psychiatry, uh, but ECT, not so much. It was initially demonstrated in, the 19, in 1948, actually, by a movie called The Snake Pit, probably before all of your times, but it did depict ECT as barbaric, chaotic, traumatizing, which at the time, if they weren't using any sort of anesthesia, it may have been. Unfortunately, that doesn't really resemble what the modern practice is, and so fear has been fostered since the 40s, since we started making television. Um, and this continued up until modern times. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was a book in the 60s that became a movie in 1975. And I found a really interesting piece of research by Walter that said um, a third of medical students were shown scenes from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which demonstrated ECT being performed. And um, about a third of students who watched it decreased their support for the treatment after viewing this. Which I think is so interesting because, you know, you expect that medical students have some idea of what's going on, but they were so affected by watching this television that they would have dissuaded a family member or friend from undergoing ECT. So I just thought that was a really interesting thing and, you know, maybe an important component to say, hey, um, even people who may have been exposed to this in an educational format may still not fully understand and be swayed by pop culture. Um, so. A lot of television continues to represent the 1950s era of ECT and fails to portray modern ECT. Um, it has also been demonstrated as a tool for social control because in the 40s and 50s ECT was also used to treat homosexuality in the 50s and 60s. So it was really weaponized against marginalized communities which is incredibly unfortunate. Yeah. Um, so again the demonstration of ECT is a kind of a grotesque tool of social control, um, kind of minimized the potential utility in severely ill patients. Um, we also discussed ECT shows up in the TV show Stranger Things, the movie Suicide Squad, A Beautiful Mind, things you've all have probably seen, um, and it's definitely colored most of our perspectives. Now on the other hand, I do want to talk about another reference, um, the actress Carrie Fisher, you may have heard of her. Um, Heck yeah, <laughs> Princess Leia. <laughs> yes, an icon. So Carrie Fisher was pretty open about her struggles with substance abuse and bipolar disorder and treatment-resistant depression. Um, and it definitely colored her experience in Hollywood. She did write a memoir called Shockaholic that detailed her really positive experiences with ECT, which were honestly revolutionary. At the time, you know, it's, it sounds like a scary thing. Who would do that? Um, it just looked scary in the media, but she was very open about the fact that ECT had the power to reverse her really stubborn depression. Um, she did say, 
in reference to amnesia that some of her memories will not return. They are lost, along with the crippling feeling of defeat and hopelessness, which is not a tremendous price to pay. And that's a quote from someone who underwent um, tons of treatments with ECT and really felt as though it treated her depression. So that's... My, I was just going to chime in there. Um, Carrie Fisher actually came to the American Psychiatric Association meetings and talked about her first episode. I won't talk about that here by the book. Um, and she, she, it was the strangest thing ever because she was no longer Princess Leia, she was Carrie Fisher. And she became this incredible human being that uh, that, that time watching her describe her experiences really did affect me in a way that I, I, I struggle to describe. And the challenges of being well. What you just mentioned is what the vast majority of the patients that I work with or have worked with that have had ECT have mentioned, and that is that they don't love everything about it, but they wouldn't trade it. That seems to be the consensus for most of the patients, even with this really great quote that she has. I think you didn't read that yet? There are a couple. She said a lot of great things. Yes. So <laughs> I have a couple quotes from her that I want to talk about. But just to sum up the history, um, with um, treatment-resistant depression, the remission rate for ECT can approach upwards of 90% with relief within 10 to 14 days, according to Dr. Bakai and Moeller. Um, and so with a scary history like that, it can be off-putting for patients, but it really is an important treatment option, and that's why we thought it was such a great topic to talk okay. about. Unfortunately, the mechanism of action is not so clear, so I'm going to hand that over to Max and let him try to elucidate it for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Good luck with this, by the way. <laughs> so, um, like Michaela said, it is not clear. But uh, what is clear is that rapid um, positive response in, all, in many patients. Um, I think that Michaela just mentioned that 90%, approaches 90%. I think usually the efficacy rate, or the remission rate, I should say, hovers around like 80% for the ECT, which is significantly above uh, uh, antidepressants, which is somewhere around 50 to 60, I think. Is that, is so, that so I was looking at the article. There was uh, essentially remission curves. Mm -hmm. Who remained unremitted, which is kind of a backward survival curve on the, on the articles that we looked at. And it was a comparison between ECT and fluoxetine. And the, the numbers on fluoxetine were very consistent with what we see over and over and over, and that is that about 60% of the people that take SSRIs have um, a reduction in symptoms, and about 30% of the people who take SSRIs have a recovery. And what I was struck by was that the uh, reduction in symptoms was approached 100% with ECT, and the recovery at the, I think it was the four-week to six-week mark, somewhere in there, was still somewhere around 90% that had maintained remission. And to me, that was uh, just mind-blowing, right? I, I didn't expect the numbers to be that high. Yeah. And I'm aware that this is the best treatment we have for depression. And, I mean, even that study, it was a difficult study because they compared two groups. It wasn't it wasn't a head-to-head. -head. They took two different studies, and one study, as far as I could tell, was uh, people who didn't have treatment-resistant depression, so we were comparing uh, a, quote, uh, normal population um, with the fluoxetine arm, but they didn't make that distinction with the ECT arm. So I, I still was uncertain if this was a treatment-resistant depression arm that was being compared against a, a fluoxetine arm that had been, you know, 
yeah. done at different times. So, so I was left with more. I think I was left with the idea, holy cow, this might even be better than what the data is showing me. Right. Yeah. I, you know, it. The whole time as I was doing this uh, this research and talking with Kayla, it's like, why isn't this first line? But I think a lot of it, you know, definitely uh, has to do with the media's portrayal and um, and just you know, cost. Just some, yeah, cost is a big thing, which I think Michaela is going to get into in a bit. But as far as mechanism of action, there is no confirmed mechanism, but there are some prevailing theories. Um, three of them that I think that uh, are most relevant for boards and for uh, our understanding, especially with uh, the current theories with antidepressants, which is also um, pretty elusive. So the monoamine theory is basically that there is an increase in, in certain monoamines, like serotonin, um, in animal models, and that ECT is modulating these monoamine neurotransmitters in some way. Um, actually, what was interesting is I did read, some of them said that they were attenuating um, serotonin and, or uh, norepinephrine, which kind of confused me. I figured that the, those would go up. But um, the other is a modulation of neurotrophic factors, so uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is uh, in, uh, one of the theories of the mechanism of action of SSRIs. Um, so kind of kind of makes sense there that they would have a similar mechanism of action. And then the other is the anti-convulsant uh, theory. So afterwards, after these, um, after the convulsive therapy, there is an increased level of GABA. There's an increased uh, flow of blood to certain areas of the brain. Um, specifically, uh, the mesial temporal lobe has an increased blood flow and increased metabolism. Um, there's been imaging studies that have shown that there's an increase in volume in the hippocampus, and um, kind of confusing, but there's actually a decrease of blood flow and decreased metabolism to the frontal lobe on imaging. So that also has a anticonvulsant effect. So those are those are the uh, the prevailing theories, but still not totally clear, not not necessarily. And I think even those theories have have some play around them. So the monoamine theory. Or maybe better said, the neurotransmitter theory has some thoughts about maybe uh, endogenous opioids being a factor in this. Mm -hmm. um, the BDNF, uh, there's a larger theory that maybe is part of that that talks about structural plasticity, neurogenesis, stem cell generation, right? That That's kind of out there, but... Uh, Right? Yeah. We're shrugging, by the yeah. way, for those of you that are watching at <laughs> you home. You can hear that shrug. Um, changes, epigenetic effects are mentioned, but uh, that's, I think, only in animal models right now. It's sort yeah. of a new line of inquiry, I, I think. And then maybe some sort of, uh, when you have this seizure, there's, if I understood correctly, it's an autonomic event, and that changes the blood-brain barrier. Did I read that correctly? I think so. That's what I that also understood. That was one other aspect of this. So, so three common theories. Lot still to discover in this. Definitely. Sounds, so yeah. The most, uh, well, at least from my monkey brain, the most clear <laughs> way uh, of it describing its mechanism of action was a reset button, which I like. You know, it simplifies it. I, I know that that is not, that's not the correct answer, and you know, resetting to what, but you know, maybe a calmer state. I don't know. So, I think we mentioned, or we mentioned the remission rates. Um, uh, I was going to talk about side effects, actually, if. Uh, yeah, let's do it. I think that's. I think that's next. So, there are obviously um, some worries about amnesia. With uh, that's basically the main 
adverse effect that is not due to anesthesia. And uh, that is both anterior grade and retrograde, but it's usually very, uh, very recent memories. So um, as Michaela was saying earlier, the mo how the modern day ECT therapy looks, they, these treatment teams, they pay close attention to, you know, do you have any very important memories to you that have happened in the last few months? Because the more proximal the memory, the more likely it is to be disrupted. And it's usually just, you know, bits and pieces of it. It's not necessarily you're forgetting everything, but you know, they, they're very cognizant of that. And I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Um, I'd never heard that before. Yeah, I like that's that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is interesting. So it's usually the anterior grade is, is also very uh, short-lived. It's usually only a few weeks. Um, there are cases of people saying they have some, some permanent memory effects. It's usually not like, you know, they can't remember anything, but they, they think that their memory has changed in some way. So this was, this was very interesting to me because I think a couple of the review articles, we largely looked at review articles for this because I think yeah. our goal was a very a general introduction into the data. A number of those uh, review articles had meta-analysis, which was where we got the efficacy data from, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Effect size of 0.91, by the way, that's huge. I've never seen an effect size that, that significant. Um, but the other thing that over and over I saw in the, these articles, and perhaps we just don't have a good sense of the memory issues, but it, it almost sounds like they're making the case that the side effect is people feel like their memories are not the same, but when we do the testing, it doesn't look like memories have changed. So either there's a problem with the testing, or the side effect is the subjective change in feeling that memories have changed as opposed to the memories have changed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the answer to that. That's something that maybe will come up in another podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, another couple of interesting facts I looked at with uh, uh, memory was, you know, before there was this anesthesia, the, the amnesia was actually a positive side effect because people would kind of forget the, the, the terror they experienced. This is back, you know, before they had anesthesia and, okay. and all that. But um, so unilateral, you know, we talked about the placement of the electrodes. They, they seem to, to have some different side effects. So the most common orientation of the electrodes is uh, unilateral on the non-dominant hemisphere on the right side in most patients. So they've noticed that this, is, this reduces the risk of these memory side effects, and, but it, the, the cost is, is that it increases the duration of treatment. So. Bilateral is a quicker, more rapid response, but there are slightly increased risk of that, this, these amnesias. And so, Max, when you say bilateral, is that like they're placing electrodes temporal to temporal? Exactly. And then unilateral is... They'll yeah, have one, one on the side and one, one on the, the vertex of yeah. the skull. So there's just, just to the right of the vertex of the skull is where the top one is, and then they have one on the, on the temporal bone. And then the bilateral is on actually the frontal bone, so just above the the eyebrows on the outside. Good thing you were an anatomy fellow. It's yes, right it now. really is <laughs> paying off right now. So we talked about amnesia and that's our significant side effect outside of the effects of anesthesia. I did want to address that there are a few that are common um, adverse effects but are just due to anesthesia. So any procedure you experience under anesthesia, you're at risk of these. So um, patients most commonly report dry mouth, nausea, headache, and myalgias after ECT, but they are usually um, pretty mild, transient, and really haven't been studied because they're pretty par for the course when it comes to waking up from anesthesia. Um, there still are cardiac, vascular, um, neurologic evals before and after, but those are the side effects experienced that are typically um, not incredibly concerning. One other um, 
component of research that I read about in the Journal of Biological Psychiatry. Uh, it was published in 1993, so it's a little bit dated now, but physicians were concerned that seizure threshold may be affected by ECT um, just because you are inducing seizures, and this was actually, um, according to the research, it, it is not affected. Patients before and after ECT did not have an altered seizure threshold. So I thought that was an, also an interesting component, because that did cross my mind at one point um, in terms of long-term effects of this. I actually think I read that there is a... Uh, a the anti-convulsant uh, effects of these of the ECT is actually long-lasting, so mm -hmm. they're less likely to have seizures in the future, yeah. which is pretty interesting. Uh, I would, oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, well, and I looked up some stuff just about like anesthesia because I was interested to see if there was a difference in the choice of anesthesia and if that had any effect on so the you, ECT. Isn't it usually the short-acting? So uh, yeah, so they typically will use... Um, Methahexatol. Methahexatol. That? That's what the word I was looking for. And so the um, studies that I looked at, it was comparing like methahexatol, which was the gold standard, to um, ketamine mm -hmm. because ketamine has been used alone to treat some depression. Yeah. Like we've started to look at that. And what they found was in patients that um, they weren't able to induce a seizure for greater than 25 seconds if they transitioned them to the ketamine, then they could induce a seizure duration that was longer and had greater amplitude. And then the other thing that they noticed, um, and this was a study by Crystal um, et al., and it had, and it was in the um, Journal of Neuropsychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences. And the other thing that they noticed with the ketamine, um, and I saw this in a couple other studies that I looked at, was that it had some synergistic effects That's with the ECT. Mm -hmm. um, so they had shorter um, duration of the amnesia and um, when they came out of um, the ECT period, they just didn't have as many um, side effects from the anesthesia itself. Interesting. But, you know, the thing with ketamine, you do, and they did note this, was that you do have the risk of people as they um, come out of that sedation of having some hallucinations, and so you just have to be aware of that. And they, typically those resolved with um, benzodiazepines, but there was one case that they noted where they had to give um, haloperidol to um, sedate the patient, but those effects resolved quickly. Yeah, it always makes me nervous to give my patients ketamine because of the psychosis issues, right? Yes. Yeah. I think I mentioned that in a podcast we did on, on ketamine, but I don't recall at this point. <laughs> so it's been over 80 years since ECT has been introduced to medicine. Um, it seems to have really great rates, it works really well, what are some roadblocks? I mean, why are we not using it all the time? And one of those that we came across pretty quickly was cost, um, money talks. So treatments can cost between $300 and $1,000 per treatment, um, and you initially require... Hold on, how much did you say? 3000 three, 300 to 1000 per treatment. Per treatment, so the series is... The series, is usually, five usually to your initial series is 5 to 15, and then you require 10 to 20 maintenance. So thousands and thousands of dollars is what we're talking about. Um, the costs are typically covered by most health insurance, according to my research, and as well as Medicaid and Medicare, um, but the patients do have to pay their deductibles um, if they're getting um, the ECT at a, an approved hospital. Um, but I also don't want to minimize indirect costs to patients, um, transportation, loss of productivity, things like that. So those are also um, costs to consider. Um, in an article I read about mathematical mathematical modeling for ECT, 
Offering it as a third line treatment costs an estimated 54000 per quality adjusted life year. And if you're going to ask me what that is, I'll tell you. Um, it essentially compares the length of your life versus the quality um, and tries to give that a unit. Um, and the idea would be that if you can expand upon the current standard of care, you can increase your quality um, adjusted life years gained. So over four years um, with the utilization of initial ECT, this reduces time with uncontrolled depression from 50% of your life years to 34% of your life years. And if you just think, okay, a percent, you're dropping 16%. That's 16% of your life. And I think that just speaks volumes to the way ECT can affect our patients and increase their quality of life. Um, and I, oh, go ahead. I was going to jump in on that. Yeah, so when I read through this article, there were a couple of questions I had, and perhaps you can answer those. The first was, it looked like they compared a current standard of care, which I think is accurate, and that is that you have, uh, what is it, six unsuccessful trials of pharmacological medications, and then the seventh treatment for treatment-resistant depression can be ECT. That seems mm -hmm. to be the place where the insurance companies will start saying, okay, this is where we will now pay for the medication. It, that sounds right then. That sounds six right. and seven, yeah. not five and six, but six and seven, right? Yeah. Okay, so I think the case that they were making was that the value of the life year, it's worth $55,000 to society per year that you gain, mm -hmm. but it might not be worth more to society per year gained. And, and the tipping point for them, or the, the point where it became uh, the life years were valuable to recover was after, I think, the third failed treatment. Mm -hmm. Does that sound right? Or was yeah, it after they, the second failed treatment and then the third option would be? One of the components of this research was that if we do ECT earlier than sixth or seventh or eighth option, um, we're gonna get more value from those years, um, more productivity, um, all kinds of things like that, minimizing the cost of a depression-related hospital stay. So one of their, um, one of the things that they really wanted to hit on was that if we're able to um, move ECT up as one of the options that it may increase quality of life. Yeah, and I think they were making the strong case for do it sooner. Mm -hmm. And the value is there. Even though it costs more, the value is there, I think is the argument. They we're, were seeing making. more benefit. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, that was really the big thing that we wanted to hit on in terms of cost because, you know, medicine is unfortunately still a business and um, when it comes to insurance and finding care, it's important that not only do we have treatments like ECT, but we make them as accessible as possible and we find ways to make it approachable for patients and physicians to consider as a treatment. So. I want to throw one thing out there very quickly. We're at 42 minutes, which means we did this a lot more quickly than most other podcasts. Very well done. Uh, I think Elliot or Will, yeah, go ahead, fist bump it. Don't hurt yourself on the ring there. Ouch. <laughs> um, Elliot or Will, one of the two of you looked at uh, RTMS, right? And one of the things that's very important, I, I think we covered this somewhat, is that ECT is an electrical current that's the, the design or the, the goal is that it uh, reduces depression through some unclear mechanism as of yet. Over 50 years, we've changed the dose. We've become more clear about the needed seizure length, which I read two things. One is greater than 25 seconds, one is greater than 30 seconds. The longer we go on the seizure, the most, uh, the higher the risk for the post-ictal delirium and yeah. confusion and the higher the risk for the memory issues. Mm -hmm. And uh, so even though we have substantially improved the way that ECT is, and, and by we I mean really smart people, not me, um, 
there might be a, a role for a new type of electrical disturbance mm -hmm. that gives similar kinds of effects. Tell me how ECT and RTMS are in the same vein. Is, is that a discussion that you read at all? Um, I, d I had looked more at like the vagal nerve stimulator. So I did look a little bit into it, just, you know. Okay, so, so we'll go to that and then we'll go vagal nerve. How does that sound? These, uh, these other brain stimulation therapies, like repetitive uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation um, specifically, that one is, it's not inducing a seizure, right? Not a generalized seizure like ECT is. And there has been a, a lot of research done on its efficacy in major depressive disorder, and it seems like it is quite effective. The, the interesting thing I saw was that, I think it's the Hamilton um, depression scale, is that mm -hmm. right? So people, people will say that they, they, they got more results out of ECT. It seems to be m just that much more effective well, it's not. Uh, doesn't have the same uh, mechanism of action. It's similar because it is a mag you know electromagnetic in uh, in its mechanism. We don't. It's not electricity, it. but so yes, it's electromagnetic. It's electromagnetic. And so because similar, it's not electricity, it does not require anesthesia, and so some patients find it more approachable in that way. Yes. Um, there's no sedation required, and so it can be an outpatient procedure. So I did see that as one of the potential benefits in the eyes of a patient. But in terms of efficacy, um, it's not better than ETC. We yeah. don't see it compared that way. And I think the cost of the treatment is still very, very high. Still very high. high. <laughs> yeah. um, VNS. Now, one of the things I don't think we mentioned, I think we, I think we mentioned that a lot of the side effects from the ECT process are related to the uh, other medications given for the treatment. But I think one of the things that was mentioned that the seizures induced by uh, the electroconvulsive therapy or recurrent can actually affect that vagus nerve, and that is one of the theories behind the GI distress that is fairly common mm -hmm. in this procedure. VNS, uh, the VNS devices were approved, I think, when I was uh, starting residency. They had been studied. One of the sites was Houston, and it was one of the preceptors we had was um, associated with those studies, and they showed fairly impressive data, right? Mm -hmm. the, People who don't get recovery from ECT, people who don't get recovery from medications, from lithium, from everything under the sun, yes. could then seek out VNS. And VNS wasn't a solution, but it picked up another 30% or so of those people that never had any relief. Does that sound about right? Does that set the yeah, stage about the right way? I think so. Um, and the thing with VNS, I think, is it's more, it's more invasive because you're having a surgery um, and you're getting a device implanted. So there's obviously complications that come with um, having that nerve stimulator um, placed. And then the other part is that it's battery operated and batteries, they have a terminal um, life. And so <laughs> with the VNS, the batteries, from what I have read is they last on average about eight years. Um, so that means every eight years, you're gonna have to have um, a new battery put in place. And they're expensive. And they and they are expensive. Very expensive. Um, they're not triple A's from the drugstore. <coughs> no. I think I think the cost is about a hundred thousand to replace a battery. Yes. Um, and so with the VNS it is okay. it is very effective um, as far as being able to treat refractory depression. 
Um, and it also, not only has it been approved to treat depression, but it's also used to treat seizures as well. And so that is, again, I think where, um, like Dr. Um, Roundy was mentioning, the thought of treating or stimulating the vagal nerve, uh, treating both seizures and depression come into play. The thing with the VNS device is the side effect profile that it has. Um, I think it can be intrusive and I'm gonna say maybe annoying for patients just because it can cause hoarseness um, and some alterations in their voice and that's just because of where the electrode is placed and it's um, stimulating the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so when patients, their voice starts to go hoarse, they can just swipe across their chest. And so you'll notice patients that have a VNS, they have um, a little key is what I'm gonna refer to it as. Um, and they can just swipe that across their chest and that will reset the device. I think my understanding is that the, the magnetic bracelet triggers the device. So they wouldn't use it if their voice were hoarse, but you would hear the, hoarse, the hoarseness of their voice after triggering. Yeah, and I, well, so that was the thing I was, I guess I was confused about in reading was that I read it was both, I guess, but maybe that was the earlier devices or I could have totally misunderstood, but I thought it was if it was stimulating that, um, or like irritating that nerve, then they would come across. But that was probably my misunderstanding on how I read that, so. Uh, I, I'm not gonna disagree with you. You're a very <laughs> bright student. I think uh, my experience with uh, people I've worked with is that you, if you have aura of a seizure coming on, you can trigger the device to try and reduce the risk of, of tripping into a seizure, so to speak. And I'm gonna go with, that makes much more sense to me, so. I trust Elliot with my life, so I'm just gonna go ahead and believe both of you. Interesting, <laughs> holding two bits of disparate data in your mind at one time. Um, so, so Elliot, I think one of the things that you're helping out with here is recurrent laryngeal nerve. I think that might have been a question I asked at one point on this rotation. It was. It was. I think that was the. Um, that might have been our first day. For some reason, that sticks in my head. Um, it's either the first, the first or the second day of the rotation. Um, and you will never forget it. And again, I'll never forget it. I was. For some reason, I, I was like vague. You know, I knew it was a branch off of the vagus nerve, but I could not. Um, come up with it, but it's I stuck in my brain forever. I can't tell you any other nerves that come off the nerve, so, so I get it. Don't um, get Max started. Max can. Oh, I think Max would like to go down that road. No, right that's now. No. We're good there. Uh, so the only other thing that I think I wanted to mention, and I think I did already, is the, the dosing of ECT is important, right? Too long, bad, too short, no benefit. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this always this kind of dosing strategy that you're trying to hit exactly within that 30 to 60 second uh, seizure or 25 to 60 second seizure window, right? Yeah. And I'm not sure that I know the answer. I, I saw both in the data I read. Mm -hmm. uh, any? I think we've covered everything we really wanted to cover. So, uh, Will, did you have anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to say I thought it was pretty interesting that in the comparison of ECT to non-ECT, they use what they call sham ECT. And I was kind of confused on what the heck is that? And so what they would do is they, <laughs> would, all of a sudden. they would have the exact same setting, they'd be in the same place as the patients who were getting ECT and who were getting sham ECT. And they would actually get the propofol or whatever drug that they were using to sedate. Methahex. Say it again. Methahexatol. Accommodate. If I'm, I, 
Yes, no, there we go. Atomidate. Atomidate is the other option. Uh, but they would not get the succinylcholine, so they wouldn't get the muscle relaxant, but they'd still be knocked out, and then obviously no stimulation. So um, I just thought it was interesting, and kind of as DO students, we see a lot of research articles about OPP and sham OPP, um, and so just in, in the research setting, I can see how it can be hard to kind of do ECT and then fake ECT and try and get patients to be blinded. So I yeah. found that pretty interesting. And a big issue there is just the ethics of it, because typically this is an isolated treatment for emergently ill patients and patients who need treatment now. And so the ethics of doing research that says, hey, we're actually not going to give you the beneficial this part of this treatment is, you need. is yeah. tough to navigate, I'm sure. I'm glad that's not my job. Um, but it's just, uh, that's murky water, in I my opinion. I think originally we didn't have that kind of data, but I think we do now, right? I think the data is pretty yeah. solid on that. I don't think anybody's, at this point, really going back to say, does ECT change depression? Right? Mm -hmm. I don't think pretty that's, clear. <laughs> I, I think so. I was, I was floored by it. Uh, very interesting, though, and also think about VNS and shamming VNS. They had to, if I remember correctly, uh, they did do the surgery. They had to put uh, devices in people. Uh, inactive devices, and then they had to turn those off when they were evaluated so that nobody's voice was hoarse when they were in the middle of the evaluation. And it, it complicated stuff when you have devices. Uh, I think that covers everything that we would really want to cover on this. This is a very interesting podcast. I really like how this played out. Take home points. Let's start with our two guests to the podcast. So, uh, Will and then Elliot. Uh, my biggest take home point was how negatively portrayed it is in the media, but it works, period. Yeah. And I think that I'll be interested to see in the next you know, 10, 20, 30 years if that media portrayal, because it's it's easy to portray this as bad. I mean, it's it's something if you don't know a lot about yeah, it. if you don't understand. If you don't understand, it's like, oh, wow, that is We've different. We've all stuck scary. something in a in a light socket, right? Or in a, <laughs> yeah. Okay, you guys Mom, are shaking. No, I your, didn't. <laughs> that's how I wake up in the morning. Instead of coffee. <laughs> I mean, we've all done that, right? It's horrific. It's it really hurts. At least it used to. In the <laughs> when past. I felt something. When I. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, horrific, right? It's, the portrayals. The portrayals bad, and I understand why it's an easy assumption to make, but. It works, and I'll be interested to see if that perception can change kind of in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Um, yeah, I think my take-home was similar to Will's. Uh, just the way that the media and um, even to a certain extent, I think practitioners, because I think Michaela brought up that article where medical students, um, after being shown a movie negatively portraying ECT, you know, said they wouldn't recommend it to family members. And I think that that just speaks to um, the power that, you know, people in healthcare have and the way that people that aren't in healthcare listen to um, advice or opinions um, from us. And I think we need to be cognizant of that um, and not speak to areas or um, specialties or treatments that we don't fully understand. Um, so if you're going to speak to something or somebody has a question, I think for me the thing is, if I don't have an answer, be comfortable, you know, asking a question, looking it up, or referring them, you know, out to somebody that, you know, can speak to that in an effective manner. Because I think we're doing our patients a disservice by not 
at least being able to have a conversation around a treatment that while there are risks um, and adverse side effects, there are significant benefits. And again, I think we've talked about this a little bit. It's that risk profile, like what's your accepted risk um, versus benefit and being able to you know, speak to that and have that shared decision making with the patients. I think it's important and we just need to be aware of the power that our words have, even when we're talking to family and people in the community. Flip a coin, who's next? I'll go. Um, I just, I really think in with a treatment that has such incredible efficacy for patients who have a really difficult um, diagnosis and a really difficult thing to treat, it's just so incredible that we're this is something that is able to be provided, um, but I do think it's certainly damaged and people's perspectives are viewed or colored by the media. Um, but Carrie Fisher did, was emphatic about the power of ECT and she said the truly only negative thing about ECT is that it's incredibly hungry and the only thing it has a taste for is memory. Um, and I think we've discussed a little bit what that side effect profile is. And if we're able to give patients a better quality of life for a longer time, I certainly think that um, that risk-benefit analysis comes up on the right end of the spectrum for our patients. So again, I said this a little bit in the last one, but I just, again, want to harp on the fact that it's so important to be um, reading up on things as a physician and then having really good conversations with your patients, even really difficult conversations like the ones you're likely to have with people struggling with treatment-resistant depression. Um, talk to your patients, talk to them about their options, discuss risk-benefit, be really honest, um, and then go from there. Yeah, I, uh, I do like that uh, Carrie Fisher did, you know, she was she was honest about the, the side effects that she experienced, but she was very clear that the, the benefits outweighed the, the costs. And I think that that's, that's important. But uh, my take home, I think I, on the same vein as Will and Elliot, um, it's just, it was very uh, startling to me how much uh, media and sensationalism has like affected uh, ECT and all these patients that, you know, could have had life-saving treatment. Um, you know, you could, I think we're seeing something similar with, you know, vaccine vaccination misinformation, <laughs> and you know, being properly informed and speaking to your physician and and doing the right kind of research, knowing you know where you're getting your information from is important, and it's important as a physician, as a patient, healthcare professional, layman, you know, you you need to know where you're getting this information from. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, it was a really interesting topic. So I was uh, chuckling to myself as you guys were talking about it and thinking a little bit about something my daughter says. Uh, she will say quite often, quite jokingly, oh, of course, Dad, it's on the Internet. Of course it's true, right? Something along those lines. <laughs> and I think everybody has said that sarcastically. And I don't know that we said that the same way about movies. Of course it's true. It was on TV, right? We, we didn't have that phrase, and uh, I'm glad we're now thinking about, um, of course it's true, it's on the internet in the most uh, sarcastic way possible. Right? I think my take home is a little bit different. I, I, I'll try and, and find different ground here. I think my first take home point is effect size 0.91. I've never seen an effect size that high, right? If you want to change somebody's life with the first try, you get an effect size close to one, right? If you hope that it's going to work, you get a, an effect size close to two. And some of our therapies have an effect size close to two. Uh, generally, our psychological therapies are, are in that range. Unfortunately, 
our medications approach an effect size of four to six. ECT blows everything away, right? There's nothing like this. The other thing I would add is that I'm impressed by the evolution of ECT. I never had a good sense of how this treatment evolved, right? This wasn't some barbarian hooking up uh, electrodes. <laughs> Even though the story of, of uh, orderlies chasing down the patients is, I mean, it just gives me this very sad feeling, right? I mean, the, the people that were developing ECT really, um, I think, we're trying to find something that helped treat an illness that had no treatment, which was schizophrenia, that we later found that it was better for uh, the, the affective disorders. Great, right? and uh, yet still there was this intense hope that there could be something better for people out there that just wasn't there. And here we are 80 years later, right, um, in a very different situation. I think it's actually almost closer to 90. I think that article might have been published almost a decade ago the 80 year one, or maybe five years ago, but uh, uh, Nobel Prize, right? The only psychiatry Nobel Prize was fighting illness with another illness, if I understand correctly. I used to hear that Eric Kandel was the only guy that had one that was psychiatry related, but I think... I think they were, they were definitely nominated. Uh, Wayne Howard, oh, that's true. 1927, used one disease to fight another, and what he was doing was trying to fight uh, what looks like secondary or tertiary syphilis with another illness, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think they were seeing that as mental illness, the, the secondary tertiary syphilis, and, yeah. and how he was trying to fight that. And I think he ended up with the Nobel Prize in 27. Mm -hmm. So lots of really great and interesting things uh, from this podcast. Again, major take-home points if you have somebody that immediately needs a recovery and it needs to be safe, ECT is your treatment, right? Geriatric patients not eating, emergently suicidal, treatment-resistant depression. Those are very great keywords that you pointed out. And I think that's uh, my last take home. That was far too many, but great topic. <laughs> it's a lot to take home. It's a lot to take home. Anything else from the group before we uh, team it out? I just want to say thank you to Dr. Roundy for accepting Max and I as his surrogate students. Although he is not our assigned preceptor on paper, he did allow us to do this podcast, and Max and I are super grateful for that. Definitely. So. We appreciate it. It was a lot of fun having the two of you as part of the gang, and uh, I think this is something that might, I, I'm going to have to figure out how to retool this because having four to six or seven podcasts, uh, depending on how many students start showing up as, as we expand. The service here at the State Hospital is, is a challenge I have to sort out, but I, I feel like it was wonderful what you guys did. I really liked how you tackled the topic. You picked a topic that was high yield, one that I didn't know very much about and really uh, gained by reading the articles that you provided. So thank you very much. On that note, guys, uh, great job and team out. Team out. Team out. Team out.